You have a worksheet today, worksheet number 19, entitled The Mark of the Beast. If you do not have a worksheet, then you're not going to be with us because we're going to be going over number 19, The Mark of the Beast. So hopefully everyone has that available. This is the uh, follow-up lesson to number 18, which was last night where we talked about the Antichrist's accomplice, the right-hand man, the assistant to the criminal, the Antichrist, that in the very last days of earth's history, there would be this power. And as we review, we saw Daniel chapter 2, of course, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. But Rome exists in multiple stages, multiple phases. You have imperial Rome, then you have divided into ten parts. In Daniel 2, it's the ten toes. In Daniel 7, it's the ten horns. But you have a divided Rome into ten separate sub-kingdoms. Then you have the little horn power of Rome, and it exercises its great authority for 1,260 years from 538 A.D. until 1798 A.D. This is why we repeat over and over, okay? And at the end of its time, it receives a deadly wound, and there's this judgment in heaven that commences, that begins in 1844. But then Daniel chapter 7 alludes to after the judgment scene, Daniel looks and the little horn is speaking more pompous words. It's still going after certain things. It's still in power. And of course, the little horn's not going to be destroyed till Jesus returns and is destroyed with the brightness of his coming, as 2 Thessalonians tells us. Okay? Now, in Revelation 13 last night, we saw right where Daniel's prophecy led us to the end-time events, Revelation picks up right from that point, and it goes again. In Revelation chapter 13, in the first 10 verses, we saw a retelling of the same thing that Daniel had told about the little horn and its great power that it exercises for 42 months or 1,260 years in literal time. But then it mentions that there would be a helper or an accomplice, a beast that comes up out of the earth, okay? And, of course, we identified that last night as the United States of America in Bible prophecy. Now, what we're going to do is move in today because it says that that it would be that beast power, that beast from the earth, that would make an image to the beast, to the sea beast that preceded it, the Antichrist power, and make the whole world worship and wonder after it. And as we saw, as we closed last night, before we get into this morning's message, we saw that there's a striking similarity, almost a direct parallel to the ministry, if you want to call it, of the Antichrist and his ministry of deception to try to lead people away from God, and the true ministry of Jesus Christ, of course, who wants to lead people to the Father. Right? And we notice several things. First of all, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he, was, he began by coming up out of the water, It lasted for three and a half years. He received a deadly wound, but then that deadly wound was healed, and he promised that he would send a helper to draw all men unto him, right? The exact same thing you see in Revelation chapter 13 with the Antichrist's accomplice, that there would be a helper to draw all people to this Antichrist power, who, of course, began by coming up out of the waters, prophecy shows, lasted for time, times and half a time, three and a half prophetic years, which is 1,260 literal years, receives a deadly wound, but after that, the deadly wound would be healed. So you see this counterfeit versus the truth of God. So you have the Jesus Christ truth and the Antichrist counterfeit. And in the same way, you have a, count, a true Holy Spirit that draws people to Jesus and through Jesus to God the Father. Also see a counterfeit Holy Spirit, the United States of America, leading people to the Antichrist power of the papacy, which ultimately leads back to worship the instigator of it all, the dragon beast, which is the devil or Satan. Okay? Now, if all that we just reviewed was brand new to you, I would encourage you to pick up the CDs, to pick up the worksheets, and follow along and catch up. And for those of you who have been here, now we're going to go from that point and move forward. Are we together so far? All right, fantastic. Now, before we get into today's study, however, we want to ask the Lord's blessing as we study his word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another Sabbath day of rest and fellowship and now a Sabbath time where we can come apart from everything else in the world and study your word even a little bit more. Lord, help us to understand the truth of your word. Help us to see the great themes of scripture and help us to identify Not only this counterfeit of Satan, but help us to see more clearly the truth of Jesus Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
So again, we start with our worksheet number 19, The Mark of the Beast. We didn't get into what that was. We just saw that it would exist last night. Tonight, today, now we're going to more clearly identify it. But you notice that there's a creator versus an imitator motif that runs through prophecy. For everything that Satan does in his quest to be like God, and if you recall that from Isaiah chapter 14, I will ascend, this is Lucifer's thinking before he fell, I will ascend into the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Right? That's his ultimate aim, is to be worshipped as God. And everything he does in his quest to be like the Most High is merely a counterfeit of something originally instituted by God. One of the striking things to me about Satan, though he is powerful and though he is evil, he is not particularly original. Everything that he does is simply a counterfeit of what God has already demonstrated works for him, right? So whatever God does, Satan says, I'm going to be like God, so I'm going to counterfeit what he does. He counterfeits, as we saw last night, Christ and the Trinity. So you have the true Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Revelation points out a counterfeit Trinity. You have the dragon, the beast, and this false prophet or the false Holy Spirit, the United States of America, leading back to the papacy, which leads back to the instigator of it all himself, the dragon beast. Okay? But there are other true establishments that God has that Satan tries to counterfeit. And you see these in prophecy, especially in Revelation. For instance, we'll just quickly go to some of these. Revelation chapter 12, I just want to drive home this point that everything that Satan does is merely a counterfeit of a truth that God has originally established. Revelation chapter 12, for instance, you will find in the in prophetic writings, especially in the book of Revelation, a woman is a representation of the church. Okay? So in Revelation chapter 12, you find this description of a woman. This is page 1182 in your pew Bible. Verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and notice her clothing here, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. These are all natural things. These are things that God has created. And apparently it's this wonderful, beautiful woman, but she's in a particular condition. Verse 2, then being with what? Child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So as Revelation chapter 12 continues, it's an outline of God's true and faithful church being persecuted by Satan. Okay? But now you turn over to chapter 17 and you find Satan's woman, his church. Revelation chapter 17, and lo and behold, it's a different type of woman. Chapter 17, and we'll go to verse 1. Scripture says here, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great, and this is the Bible word for it, harlot. Obviously a stark contrast from the one we saw before. Of course, by the way, in Revelation chapter 12, that child she is uh, with child with. Who is that child? Jesus Christ. And he's the son of God, right? So this is a faithful church who is bringing forth a true child, the Jesus, the genuine Jesus Christ. Yet this other church apparently is a harlot, and has had offspring as well. We'll notice this. Chapter 17 continues. Verse 1, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So it's interesting. So her relations are not in a faithful monogamous relationship with the true God. It's an adulterous relationship with the kings of the earth. Now it continues on. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Apparently wine is represented as something not good. (laughs) So he carried me, verse 3, away into the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. If you notice again our parallel from last night, this, this power comes up sitting on many waters, has seven heads and ten horns. This is another description of that antichrist power, the false church to Christ's true original. Again, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. By the way, what does that tell you about her children? They are also of the same thing, the same ilk, right? A chip off the old block, if you will. And of the abominations of the earth. And verse 6 continues, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of martyrs and with the blood of, uh, with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So God has an original, a true church in Revelation chapter 12. And trust me, we're going to be coming back to these images later on. But Revelation chapter 12, he has a true, faithful church. And then there's Revelation chapter 17, Satan's counterfeit church that is unfaithful and adulterous. Okay? By the way, if you were to continue, we don't have time to go through all of these, but God's original city has a new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven. And of course, Satan has his own city, which is Babylon, the Antichrist power. You have the sign of loyalty that God has. Look at this, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Starting with verse 1, God's true sign of loyalty on his people. After these things, chapter 7, verse 1 of Revelation, after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. So there's an identifier called the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the trees, or the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed. And who gets sealed with the seal of God? The servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? So God's servants, his faithful, get an identifying seal. Well, of course, just counterfeit to that, Satan also has an identifier for his people. This time not called the seal of God, but it's known as the mark of the beast. Revelation chapter 13 again. Revelation chapter 13, starting with verse 16. So this earth beast that we see describes in Revelation 13, 11 and onward, sets up an image to the sea beast, which is the Antichrist power, and it says here, verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Now, I want you to notice that God's seal only goes in the forehead, but the mark of the beast goes on the right hand or on the forehead. You can either get it in your hand or your head, but only God's seal goes on your forehead. Now, we'll look at the distinction between that, but both God and his counterfeiter have an identifier for their loyal subjects, their loyal servants. The seal of God versus the mark of the beast. Verse 17 continues. And that no one may buy or sell except, uh, except one who has the mark of the na- or the name or of the beast or the number of his name. Apparently the mark and the name and the number of his name are synonymous as this identifier of those who are against Christ and pledge their loyalty to the Antichrist. Right? So basically you have this motif of you have the instigator, the originator, creator versus the imitator. Everything that God has true, Satan has a counterfeit. counterfeit. Revelation chapter 13 now, again with verse 12. Notice again, and he exercises, speaking of this second beast that comes up in Revelation 13, the one that comes from the earth and not from the sea, the United States of America, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. So he's working on behalf of the Antichrist power, the sea beast. First beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it, and this is going to be key, to do what action? To worship. Now, does it cause it to worship himself? No. He's working on behalf of that first beast, the one from the sea. On to dwell in it, to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, will receive worship through the, quote, ministry, if you will, of this earth beast. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. And he deceives. Notice he works like the dragon. Remember remember in Revelation chapter 12 when it talks about the dragon was cast out of heaven? It describes him as the dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? Deceives the whole world. And here this power is working primarily with deception. Friends, you'll notice Satan's only effective weapon is deception. His only effective weapon is deception. And he works great, great amount of success with deception. And he tries it right here, and he sees it works again. He exercises again 
Verse 12, all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Basically, you have a very clear distinction here between God's people and Satan's people, and it becomes a life or death issue. It starts with deception, trying to win everybody on board, but if that doesn't work, what we're going to do is turn to oppression, persecution, and finally, capital punishment, death penalty. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 13. So let's go back down into our worksheet here, our bullet points there in the middle. The earth beast, which is the United States, we identified that last night, works for the sea beast, which is the papacy, after its wound is healed in 1798. So again, there's the whole time of time, times, and half a time, and the dark ages, and the persecution that happens then. This is not that time. This is after its deadly wound is healed, in that last final phase that Daniel saw, the little horn speaking pompous words again, this time it has an accomplice, the, sea be- I mean, the earth beast, which is the United States of America, during that time. Notice also, it says, the United States, though respecting the two separate kingdoms, as we talked about last night, of church and state, eventually will work like Satan, speak like the dragon, with deception first, followed by persecution, which is always the way Satan works. Starts with deception, and when that doesn't work, he just goes into all-out violence. The United States sets up an image to the papacy for the world to worship, and the punishment for those who refuse to worship the image and receive the corresponding mark of loyalty is first financial, but ultimately capital. Okay, we're going to start tightening. We're going to start with deception first, Then we're going to put some economic financial embargoes, some difficulties there. And finally, when that doesn't work, we'll just resort to all-out killing. This is the methodology of how the false Holy Spirit, if you will, works. Now, it's interesting to me that in the book of Revelation, that the name, because notice here, back in Revelation 13 here, says in verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Notice this is the mark if you're loyal to the image we've set up, which tells us you're really loyal to the sea beast, right? Mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Again, a distinction. Mark on their forehands or their right hand. And, verse 17, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So apparently it's synonymous. This mark of the beast is a representation of the name of the beast. And so the followers of the Antichrist will be marked with his name. Now that's a fascinating thing because all throughout the book of Revelation you see this concept of people being marked with the name of the one that they follow. For example, Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. We're going to look at a few of these. It's almost like a battle of loyalty and allegiances represented by the names that they carry. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. We're going to be in the book of Revelation almost exclusively today, but we'll, at least we'll make it home base. Notice this, that Jesus Christ has a name written on him. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made uh, him ready, her ready, herself ready. And to him it was granted to array, uh, this is a great passage, by the way, it's not the one that we're looking for, but we'll just keep reading it. <laughs> and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clear and bright, for the lin- fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Apologize for that, but Christ has a name written on him. Uh, whenever he returns, I believe it's probably verse 16, I would take a guess there. There it is. And he has, and you can mark that in your, in your notes there, put a one in front of the six. 
And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. And of course, what is his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has a name on him identifying who he is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, if you go just one chapter to the, uh, a couple chapters back to the left, in chapter 17, you'll find, as we've just previously read, that the Antichrist has a name written on it. This Antichrist power, this papacy, verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written. But it doesn't say King and Kings of Lord of Lords. It says, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. So you have Jesus Christ, and in your Bible says big, bold, big, bold title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you have the Antichrist has a name emblazoned on it. Okay? This time it's Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, Revelation chapter 3, the followers of Jesus have their name, his name, on them. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. Page 1176 in your pew Bible, Revelation 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, this is Jesus speaking, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of God, out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. So the promise is given to overcomers that the name that Jesus has will be on them as well. He's going to put my name on them. So Jesus has his own name, and he says, and those who overcome, I will put that name on them. He's going to identify them as his people with his name. Now, Satan followers, by the way, you see several examples of that. We'll just go with that one, but 14.1 and 22.4, you'll find the same thing. But now let's go to Revelation 13 again and just see the consistency of this. So not only does the Antichrist have a name on it, but now it places its name on its followers. Revelation 13 and verse 17. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So you, you get the picture. There's God with his son Jesus Christ who has a name on him. And Jesus Christ's followers will have that name put on them if they're overcomers. Counterfeit to that, the Antichrist power has a name emblazoned on it and will put that name on its followers. Okay? So there's a clear distinction between the Jesus Christ and the Antichrist, and each is identified by the one it follows. Okay? It has the name on him. Now let's continue on. Now Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6, if we go back there, the Antichrist apparently does not like the name of God and, in fact, blasphemes it. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6. Then he opened his mouth against, uh, in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his what? His name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. He blasphemes the name of God, tries to uh, smear the name of God. And, of course, all throughout Scripture, the name of God is equated with the character of God. This is going to be an important thing that we're going to come up with, but he, dis, he dislikes God, he dislikes his name, he dislikes his government, he smears it, he blasphemes it. Okay. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 9, and you'll notice following suit. This surprise, surprise, the followers of the Antichrist also do the same thing. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 9. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Now, we don't simply have time to go into all the different things that you see, like the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven plagues of the book of Revelation. But I will tell you that the plagues occur after Jesus has finished his most holy place ministry, They're poured out full strength, unmingled with mercy upon the unrepentant, and during that time, they blaspheme the name of God. They're receiving what they've deserved, but in the midst of it, they're blaspheming the name of God, which is exactly what the one they followed did, blaspheme the name of God. So they've obviously developed his character, so the desires that he wants to do are seen in his followers. By the way, didn't Jesus speak of this? 
Remember in John chapter 8, he has that interaction with the Pharisees? And they said, oh, we're the children of Abraham. And he says, no, 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 no. Genetically, you might be the children of Abraham, but you're from a different father. And he says, the desires of your father you want to do. Right? And it makes it clear. And by the way, Jesus doesn't even pull any punches. He says who that father is. He says, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar. All those different things. He says, I'm seeing in you the same character that was in him. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. There's Jesus Christ and his followers develop his character and represent him, have their name on, his name on them. And the Antichrist has his followers who represent his character in the world. It's a very simple chain of command, a hierarchy, if you will, spiritually. Now, of course, contrast that, Revelation 15 In verse 4, instead of blaspheming the name of God, what do God's representatives do? Verse 4, who shall, they ask this rhetorical question, well they start with verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, or glorify your, what? name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Which is fascinating to me. Here, the seven last plagues are being poured out, and the wrath of God is being demonstrated against those wicked. And the wicked are sitting there blaspheming the name of God, and the righteous are there saying, who will not glorify your name? And the question is, who won't glorify your name? And the answer is given, when the wicked open their mouth instead of repentance to blasphemy. Again, demonstrating they have perfectly reproduced the character of the Antichrist in their lives. Which, of course, we go back to Exodus chapter 34. Why is the name such a big deal in the book of Revelation? Why is it Jesus Christ's name and the Antichrist's name and the followers have the names? Why is the name such an important thing? Exodus chapter 34. Moses had asked the Lord, this is page 85, by the way, in your pew Bibles, Moses had asked the Lord for a special gift. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord retorts and says, I will pass all my goodness before you. And it describes his character. Now look at chapter 34. And notice in starting with verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. So he's about to tell us what the name of the Lord is. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now pause right here. He just said what he proclaimed. What was it that he was about to proclaim? The name of the Lord. So whatever we see now is the name of the Lord. Yes? Okay. So now watch this. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, and it doesn't just outline some specific syllables or consonants or vowels. This is a a, a linguistic name. It's a character name. Watch this now. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it goes on to say, by no means clearing the whom? guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. When God wanted to proclaim his own name, when God says his name, he's not worried about consonants and vowels and syllables and linguistics. He's talking about character. And the name of God is who he is in his being, his character. So thus you see a battle between the name of the Jesus Christ and the name of the Antichrist because it's the character of Christ versus the character of Satan. And that character is reproduced in their followers. Is this clear? Okay. And so they have the name of God emblazoned on their forehead and they have the name of the Antichrist emblazoned on them because they represent these two different characters, these two different beings. And again, let's go back to this, by the way. Why the forehead in the hand. Well, forehead, by the way, uh, we could do a whole study on this, but in the Old Testament, you could have, the, you could have the, uh, the word of God on your forehead. This idea of being marked on your forehead is not particularly new, but the forehead is a representation of 
conscious decision, right? The executive ability in the brain, your volition, your will, your desire, your choice. You choose to do this thing. The hand is just something you go along with and you do, okay? And I think it's a very, very important contrast that you see God does not mark people in their hand in the last days. No one just kind of goes along with it. You have to choose to serve the Lord God. On the other hand, the mark of the beast, he's fine with it. If you want to choose him, that's great. And even if you don't, just go along with it, right? This is an important distinction. God only wants worship from your choice. He will never coerce. He will never force. He will never implore you to do it. I mean, he'll never force you to do it. Satan, on the other hand, doesn't care if it's genuine worship. He just wants you to go through the motion to make him look good, right? He doesn't care if it's coming from your heart. You think back to the Daniel chapter 3. In fact, I believe we're going to get there in a little bit. I don't want to get too far ahead, but um, there was a time when, well, we'll just save that for later. I'll give the example as we close. I really like the example, and you're just going to have to hang on and wait. Sorry. Not really that sorry, but anyway. By the way, this concept of having an outward sign of an inward character is not new in the book of Revelation. This is a theme that runs way back deep in Scripture. Let's take a look at a few examples. Genesis chapter 17. This can be page... uh, uh, Genesis chapter 17, page 13 in your pew Bible. It was after Abraham's unfaithfulness with Hagar that the Lord instituted circumcision as a sign of faith between himself and his covenant people. Genesis chapter 17, starting with verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And, you shall, and he shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So notice the covenant is, is, is a thing that existed before the sign, yes? Sure, it started way back in Genesis chapter 12. But because of his unfaithfulness, he says, okay, now that you've done this Hagar thing, and you're, now you've got a son not according to the promise you've met, I need to see a demonstration of this character. Right? There's going to be an outward sign, and thus God's people would be marked with this sign in the flesh, if you will. Romans chapter 4, by the way, picks up on this concept. Romans chapter 4, page 1088. And notice what it says, the New Testament comments on that Old Testament rite of circumcision. Speaking of Abraham... The Apostle Paul writes, and he received the sign of circumcision. Notice again that circumcision is a sign, of an in, it's an outward sign of an inward covenant. Received the sign of circumcision, a, what does he call it? A seal. Notice that God's mark identifier is usually called a seal. It's interesting. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that, we, that he might, believe, might be the father of all those who believed, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also. You see the concept he's saying is like, the covenant was made before circumcision, and circumcision was simply an outward sign of that. But the real issue is not the circumcision of the flesh. It's not the sign or the mark or the seal. It's the inward character, it's inward faith that that sign represents. Right? So it's simply an outward sign of an inward transformation, an inward faith, an inward character. There are several other of these examples in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through all of them, but for instance, at the exodus from Egypt, the blood on the doorpost was a sign of loyalty. God said, if you, I'm going to release you from this bondage tonight, you're going to go out from here, but there was that plague to fall that would kill the firstborn child unless you had the sign of the blood on the doorpost of the house. And, of course, the angel would look for that outward sign, which would demonstrate an inward faith. Servants, by the way, wishing to remain in their Lord's service were identified correspondingly. This is fascinating. In Exodus chapter 21, it talks about how there are servants who enjoy the employment in their master's house, 
So much so that they, they, they're paid well, they, or they have a good family set up, they have a wife, they have children, they have their own household within this household. And upon their freedom, what if they want to stay? Well, the Lord makes an option for that. But what you do is you take them to the doorpost, and you, with an awl, you pierce their ear, and you put in them a mark, an identifier that says, I have committed to this to be of service to this master forever, for the rest of my life, biblically forever, right, till the end of my days. So there was an outward sign of an inward decision. And, of course, the ultimate sign of loyalty is obedience, okay? Jesus says it most clearly. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Apparently, an inward love for God will manifest itself in outward obedience to the commands of God. This is not a way, not a New Testament theme. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, page 177. We often quote Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments, but that wasn't Jesus' concept inherently. He got it from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Notice what it says in verse 1, page 177 of your pew Bible. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and what? Keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Love for the Lord is manifested in obedience to his commands. It's an Old Testament concept. Look at Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to show you this. Over and over we see this in Scripture. I don't want you to think we're pulling this out of thin air. Daniel chapter 9, page 867 in your pew Bible. Here Daniel is praying for his people that the Lord would forgive them. And in the midst of this prayer, notice what he says. Verse 4 of Daniel chapter 9. He says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Over and over, love is manifested in obedience, keeping the commandments. Now we go back to the New Testament, John chapter 4 and verse 15. We've already talked about it. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then go to the book of 1 John, all the way over towards the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. Page 1171 in your pew Bible. 1 John chapter 5 and there, verse 3. Well, we'll even far, start with um, verse 2. By this we know that we, are, that we love the children of God, that we love God and keep his commandments. And he makes it so clear, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we what? Keep his commandments. And I love that he adds in there, and his commandments are not burdensome or grievous. They're not hard. They're not difficult. People will say, you know, I love the Lord, but keeping the commandments, oh my goodness, if I were to, if I, were to all, if, if I kept all of those commandments, including that Sabbath commandment, you know what I have to give up? Oh, it'd be so difficult. Or if I follow what the Lord says about health, or if I follow what the Lord says about this, or this or that, or money, or finances, or anything in the Christian life, and my language, everything that I do, it would be so hard. He says, no, 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 no. Keeping the commandments is a piece of cake if you're in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, if it's a natural expression of love. If you're doing it to get God to love you, now that's going to change the game, right? If you're just doing it as a checklist and you don't really doing it from a motive of love, you're like, I have to do this thing to be part of this church, or I have to do this thing to be blah, 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 then of course it's going to be burdensome. But if you love the Lord, then naturally flowing out of that will be keeping his commandments. It's very simple. The Bible comes back to this Old and New Testament. The ultimate sign of loyalty is obedience. It's obedience. By the way, we have a little chart there, and it's interesting, but I want to correct something in your notes. Underneath the Father there, it says Mark 17. You can look high and low, but you're not going to find a Mark 17. Okay? I want you to know we're not trying to change the scriptures. It's just a fault in the notes, okay? The Bible's still good. The notes are bad, okay? Matthew, however, chapter 17 and verse 5 is the correct 
passage there. And what you will find simply is the outline of this sequence here. The first line is all about the truth of God, God the original, and the second line is Satan's counterfeit to God's truth. There is the Father and the true Trinity. Of course, Jesus has a Father, God the Father. Then you go to Jesus Christ, and of course, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse 7 and 8, it talks about how the world will be convicted when the Spirit of truth will come about sin and righteousness and a judgment to come. So notice that the Father sends out Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes to the world and convicts them of sin. By the way, this is the difference. The false Holy Spirit uses coercion, where the true Holy Spirit only works with conviction. Okay? Convicts the world, and as a result, they have a love relationship with Jesus Christ, which will manifest in obedience to his commandments, and they will worship God according to the commandments of God. Right? So you end up worshiping the true God, which is the seal of God. Now, on the other hand, there is the false or the counterfeit to God's original truth. You have Satan who wants to be like God. Isaiah 14 makes that clear. Then you have the Antichrist who works on his behalf. Instead of Jesus Christ, you have the Antichrist. Then you have the beast from the earth, which is the United States in Bible prophecy. And it works, as we saw in Revelation 13, not to convict the world, but to coerce the world, to force the world to obey this image to the beast, which results in false worship to the mark of the beast. So everyone's going to follow a leader. Everyone's going to follow a leader. In fact, let's go to Romans. Let me show you a text that's not in your notes here, but I want to show it to you right now. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. That's going to be page 1089 in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul lays out the principle here so very clearly. There is no such thing, by the way, as a free agent who doesn't have an allegiance. There's no one who doesn't have skin in the game, right? Everyone has chosen or is choosing a side every day, consciously or unconsciously, which, by the way, is what the right hand is all about. Like, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm not going to choose. I'll just kind of be neutral. Friends, neutrality is for the enemy, period. Bottom line, Jesus says, either you're for me or you're against me. There's not this third party of independence who I don't really take sides in spiritual matters. Yes, you do. Paul makes this abundantly clear. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you not know, and he says this is common sense, folks. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to what? Obey. You are that one slave whom you obey. You can be like, no, no, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. But are you obeying his commandments? If not then you genuinely don't love the Lord and your allegiance, your loyalty is somewhere else. Paul makes this patently clear. Notice again, verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to what? Death. Or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's like, you have two choices. You're going to obey the dictates of God because you love him and keep his commandments or you're going to Obey Satan because you love him more. Let's just be patently clear. This is where it's at. You're going to follow some leader. And of course, the original is God who we were designed. He made us. He redeemed us. He is our leader by rights. But Satan is a usurper of those things that said, no, 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 come follow me. I have a way. And from our perspective, oh, it seems good. I get to choose. I don't have to have these rigorous rules and burdens. I'm a free agent. Friends, you are not a free agent. That's the anesthesia of deception. Bottom line. Bottom line. By the way, what is the seal of God? Let's get into that. If the seal of God represents those who truly worship him and the mark of the beast designates those who worship the beast... Obviously, worship is going to be a key element in whatever these two distinguishing identifiers is. In ancient times, one's seal or a signet ring was his signature. You know, you didn't have the pen and the quill, you didn't have facsimiles, you didn't have email, but you still got transactions 
accomplished, right? You still got business done. But what you have is a seal. You have your name, your title, your territory, all these things. Who you are is represented in the seal, and you would mark things with a seal, both Old and New Testament. All throughout Bible times, you see this concept of a seal. Now let's go to Genesis 38. I'll take just a moment and show you this, perhaps one of the best examples of, the, of a seal being the identifier of a person is found in Genesis 38. The entire chapter is fascinating. Please go home and read it sometime. In fact, hey, after church today, it's still Sabbath. Go home and read the Bible some more. Genesis chapter 38. Now, this is this, this story of uh, one of the sons of Israel, one of the children of Israel by the name of Judah, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, you can read the whole convoluted story through Genesis chapter 38, but in a nutshell, Tamar's husband dies, and another one dies, and she is without child, and she decides she's going to have a child through this family somehow. So she dresses up as a harlot, and Judah comes along and employs her services, being her father-in-law. Super awkward, okay? That's theological speak. Now, he comes back later, and he goes back from his business trip, but he left his um, signet ring with her, because he has to pay, right? And uh, the payment he doesn't have on him, so he's like, let me leave my, let me leave my credit card, let me leave, my, uh, let me leave my driver's license here with my signet ring. I'm good for it, I'll come back and pay you later. Well, when he gets back home, he hears that Tamar has been caught and has become pregnant, through harlotry. Oh, and Judah is in righteous indignation. How dare a woman in my household go out and play the harlot? Bring her. He was going to burn her. Oh, he was mad. And what's clever about this lady is she's like, before we go, you know, and have me killed, um, you might want to show him these things. And she reveals to him by the way, I, I still have your driver's license. And it dawns on him, what a hypocrite I have been, right? Now, this is fascinating. So we'll go down here to, uh, let's go to verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Can you believe such a thing? So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. It's like, if you're going to purify the camp, let's make sure to get the father too, right? You might recognize these. Who do you think these are? Notice his response. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my, my son, and he never knew her again. Well, good job. <laughs> now, what's fascinating about this is that the signet was the identifier, the signet ring was the identifier, the signature of Judah. And she understood that, so she kept it so that when the time of trouble came, she'd go, like, no, 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 you might recognize this, right? That's fascinating. By the way, you see the same thing, Esther chapter 8. Well, not the exact same thing, but the, the issue of the signet ring. Page 475 in your pew Bible. In the book of Esther, right in that little sandwich of books, Esther, Esther Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Page 475. Esther chapter 8. And notice what it says here. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's what? Name. And seal it with the king's signet ring. So there was a name, but that name was embedded on this ring. And when you seal a law in the name of the king, it is permanent. Right? You see this also in Daniel chapter 6, where, the, where, the, uh, where Darius... Uh, 
seals this law I'm, uh, with uh, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, and he seals it with his ring, and it cannot be broken. can't be changed. Now, in its most basic structure, let's think about this, a seal contains three elements. This is important. That's why we have fill in the blanks so you can write it in yourself. I don't want you to miss this point. In its most basic structure, a seal contains three core elements. Number one, the person's name. Number two, their title, what it is they do for a living. And three, their territory, where they operate. For instance, you think of the President of the United States as the seal, and it has all of those things. It's the President of the United States of America. It has this, so you have a title, you know. For instance, right now it's Barack Obama, President of the United States of America. That's his seal. In a previous study, we saw that God's signature was completed work of Sabbath rest. Whenever God signs a work that he has finished, he always seals it with the Sabbath. And this is exactly what you go to Exodus chapter 20, and you find out that that's the only commandment that has all of those elements within it. Exodus chapter 20, and go to verse 8. Page 71 in your pew Bible, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. It's the only commandment that has the seal of God embedded right in it. It says his name, it says his title, and it gives the territory. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? Holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Jews. No, thank you. If you have that Bible, that is not a Bible. <laughs> it's very clear. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. Your, that's his day, right? Of the Lord your God. In it you shall, not do, you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers within your gates. Why? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh, seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Notice that his name is the Lord. His title is Creator. He's the one who made, and what did he make? The heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The whole world. He is the Lord, Creator of this world. He's the true Creator God. Right there in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. Lord, Creator of the heavens and the earth. Thus we see back in Record Revelation that when the hour of his judgment has come, which I believe we're living in right now, Revelation chapter 14, page 1183 in your pew Bible, a message goes out from the Lord. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. Why? For the hour of His judgment, notice it's not will come, but at this point, has come. This is a message that's being given at the hour of His judgment when it's time to commence. They said, folks, the judgment is begin. It's time to get right with the Lord. And notice it's not a new gospel that's preached at that point. It's still the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel is preached, but worship God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And what should we do? And worship whom? Him who did what? Him who made. Apparently there's an alternative option for worship. One who didn't make. He says, if you want to fear God and give glory to Him, worship Him because the battle line is about worship. Satan is going to try to deceive the whole world and have them worshiping Him. And he says, no, if you want to stand for the right though the heavens fall, if you want to worship the true God, worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. By the way, this is the longest direct quotation in the book of Revelation from some other place in Scripture. It's taken directly from Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment. The only commandment that tells us how to worship the Lord God and has within it the seal of God, his name, his title, and his territory. And of course, friends, if you love me, he says, keep my commandments. The real demonstration of loyalty is obedience to the commandments of God. And there's going to be a battle, apparently in the time, between worshiping Jesus Christ and the God he serves and worshiping the Antichrist and the God, quote, quote, that he serves. 
there's going to be a battle line of worship. Satan has always wanted worship. God has always deserved worship. And he says, here is where the loyalties will be drawn. One group will worship, and the other one will worship. Everyone, by the way, will worship. The question is, whom? The real issue is, who will you worship? Whom will you obey? Those who have the seal of God and are faithful to him, the true original, will keep his commandments, particularly noted, manifested in this Sabbath commandment, which is the seal of the living God. On the other hand, then, we see a counterfeit. In the closing days, the mark of the beast. In the closing days of earth history, the world will be divided in only two groups, representing either the character of Christ or the character of Satan. Everyone will have made their choice to either serve Christ and keep his commandments or serve the Antichrist and keep his commandments. By the way, there's a commandment to worship the false beast, right? The command goes out. Everyone, old and young, free and slave, rich and poor, everyone on the whole planet is called to worship. And if you don't, you're going to die. You know, to throw a little depth into this, there's always been a call to worship the true God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. So Jesus says, look, don't fear him who can kill the body only. You should fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. One death penalty is temporary. The other one is permanent. The one is simply a counterfeit. The other is the real thing. But Satan's going to try to deceive and make it look like, oh, if you don't do this, you don't. Friends, when do we get this idea that our life here is the most important thing? The most important thing is faithfulness to Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens in this life, right? But Satan wants us to think, oh, if you don't do this, I'm going. Oh, look, first of all, it looks great. Don't you just want to come along? No, I'm going to remain faithful to God. Well, look, everyone else is doing it. No, I don't care. Well, how about this? If you don't do it, you won't be able to buy or sell. I'm going to tighten it down a little bit. Fine. If you don't do it, I'll kill you. You say, bring it on. Because the God I serve, to him, death just isn't a problem. There is nothing you can hold against me when you're serving the Lord God. Thus Paul can write in his tribulations, he can say, for I am convinced, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us, by the way. The final test of loyalty will be about worship, either Jesus Christ and his true Sabbath day or the Antichrist and his counterfeit Sabbath day. Despite Satan's efforts to deceive and coerce, a remnant will remain loyal to God. Look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. There is a remnant people who will refuse to bow the knee, who will refuse every deception and every coercion and will remain loyal to God. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, they're described in this way. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Of course, the woman represents the church. And specifically, one particular portion of the church is he particularly upset at, right? And went to, was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Apparently, some of her offspring have fallen away. He's won some of them, right? They used to be pure, but they've become harlots. They've changed sides. They were, used to be the, you know, the children of this pure woman, but they've gone to Revelation 17's woman. They're the children of the harlots, right? But there's a faithful line. And he just can't shake them. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went, went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's close with Daniel chapter 3. A preview of what's to come. Page 858 in your pew Bible. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's friends... We're given Babylonian names, and we know them by those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it says here in chapter 3, of course, you recall in Daniel chapter 2, we've gone over it and over it and over it. Daniel interpreted the king's vision, the king's dream, and the king saw in that dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image, yes, a statue, 
of a man with different metals, gold and then silver and then all the way down with bronze and iron. But of course, what did the head of gold represent? Babylon. And the king tried to, you'll notice in chapter 3, change the prophetic calendar of God. Because right, it was supposed to go from Babylon to the next empire. He's like, well, how about this? Why don't we go from Babylon to just Babylon? Just make the whole thing out of gold. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together to the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Sounds very familiar to Revelation 13. There's going to be a power that sets up an image to be worshipped. Goes on. Then, Nebu- uh, then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded. O oh, peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony, all kinds of music, you shall fall down and do what? Worship. You shall fall down and worship the gold image the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a fiery furnace. This is why Daniel chapter 3, you know, Daniel is not just a book of prophecies. It also has stories in it. But the stories are prelude to, they're instructional for how to live when the prophecies come true. Therefore, our example for our admonishment. And of course, there are the three, and we don't have time to go through it all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to bow down, and they stand out like a sore thumb. And when called before the king, notice what happens here. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? And he gives them a second chance. Now, if you're ready, and he's going to play it all again. And notice he closes this in verse 15 there. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? He makes it a battle. There's your true God, quote-unquote, and there's the image I've set up. Worship one or the other right now. It's a prelude of Revelation 13. Love their answer. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to even if we die, by the way. Even if we go into that fiery furnace and we lose our lives, we're still not going to bow down. You can give it a second, third, and fourth chance, and all you're going to be doing is, that's just going to be banned practice, because nothing's happening here. Goes on. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury with the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Which, by the way, if I'm going to be thrown into a furnace, I want it to be real, real, real hot. I don't want to be slow cooked. Let's just do this thing and get it over with, right? And he commanded the certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's important to know, somebody is going to die, but it's not going to be the righteous when the plagues start to fall. In that final test, Just like it says in Daniel chapter 12, at that time Michael shall stand up and there'll be a time of trouble and at that time your people will be delivered. Goes on. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar arose and was, was astonished and arose in haste and spoke to his counselors saying, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Let me tell you something. No matter what fiery furnace-type persecution the devil can throw at you, the safest place to be is under his persecution because that's when you have the protection of the Lord. The safest place for them. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have lived another day if they had, you know, really worshipped? Notice the king doesn't care if you really worship. You don't actually have to think it's a god. Just bow down. Just go through the motions. I don't care if it's in your forehead or your right hand. Just shut up and do it. Right? That was the command. And don't you think they could have gotten away with, you know, tying their shoe and blending? Oh, I don't really worship. I'm just going to, I just don't want to stand. I don't want to be awkward. I want Let me tell you, friends, they could have bought a little more time in this life, but it would have ruined their eternal life. But they said, today we're willing to lose this life because we have the eye on the greater life to come. And the safest place for them that day was in the fire because Jesus is with them. The same thing is true, friends. Don't let the end times scare you. I don't know where we get this idea. Oh, deception is so scary. Let me tell you, you should be afraid of, you should be afraid of losing your eternal life and be faithful to Jesus Christ right now. Whatever Satan throws at you is temporary. There's nothing he can do. He said, I'll take all your money. So what? I was born broke. I'll die broke. We'll be broke. No problem. I'll take away your very life. So what? I work for the one who gives life. You can do nothing. That attitude, that resolve, that love that manifests in obedience no matter what is what the Lord is looking for in his people in the last day. And friends, we have a Jesus who's going to be faithful to us. The question is, are we going to be faithful to him? Jesus has given us his life. Are we willing to lay down ours for him if the time comes? Hopefully for me and for you. It's yes, Lord. Whatever you say, I'm with you. Has today's message made sense? Is it clear? Praise the Lord. We're going to be back again tonight, though. It's 7 p.m. We hope to see everyone here. But before we go, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truths of your word for the relevance that they have to our lives today. We are truly living in that day of the judgment. We're living in that day of atonement when the final records of earth are being considered. And there will be a push soon and very soon to let allegiances be shown and everyone's going to worship someone. Lord, we want to worship you. Teach us now in this time of relative calm and safety to develop that character that when the difficult time comes, we're not deceived, we're not oppressed, we're not shaken from our faith, but we're grounded in a love relationship with Jesus Christ that come what may, we will obey and be faithful even unto death. And we will be given the crown of life. Lord, to that end, I ask that you keep us faithful. Help us to be the people who love you and keep your commandments. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.